Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kion Wolf asking uh, during your podcast. I'm not sure what time you're listening to this, <laughs> but we're glad you tune in. We're glad you tune in. I hope every day, but whenever you can. So give us a call, but you have to support the show. We can't do it without your support. 1-800-584-2788. Go online at WNPR.org. And just like you made the great decision to listen to this podcast, please continue to make great decisions by being a member or renewing your membership. If you don't remember the last time you renewed your membership, then it's probably time to renew it. That's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem, but you're going to solve it because you're a public radio listener and that's what you do. So call 1-800-584-2788 or go to WNPR.org slash donate. And and thank you. Enjoy the podcast. All right. So the genesis of this show uh, is that uh, Lily Tyson, who is guest producing for us again today, we are very, very lucky for that, uh, got kind of obsessed actually very obsessed with Elizabeth Holmes' Theranos story. And meanwhile, we really started to notice that there are a lot of examples of what our friend Nicholas Qua, the podcast expert, calls scam tent, which isn't really the greatest portmanteau ever, but it's a blend of scam and content. And so, yeah, in the case of Elizabeth Holmes, there's, you know, Kate McKinnon's going to play her in one series on Hulu. Jennifer Lawrence is going to play her in another film. There's a documentary on HBO. There's podcasts. There's everything. I'm trying to sell a contract right now to write a book from the point of view of Balto, who was her dog, who apparently peed all over the Theranos headquarters. Uh, and, you know, if it's Bertie Madoff, you can watch Richard Dreyfuss play him, or you can watch Robert De Niro play him. Jennifer Lawrence is going to play pretty much everybody. Uh, I think she's also playing Anna Delvey in another project. We're going to explain to you who that uh, is or was. We like watching this stuff. Oh, and then, of course, there's the two different Fire Festival documentaries as well. So, so we're fascinated by it. We're repelled by it. We want to see if we could talk a little bit about why that would be. We wanted to start with, ideally, Maria Konnikova, the journalist, professional poker player, and author of several books, including, most significantly, The Confidence Game. So, Maria, welcome back to our show. We are very happy to have you here. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be back. So, um, first of all, maybe when we just sort of start start with why we want to know about all this stuff, there's there is an element of schadenfreude, right? I am not the most accomplished person in the world, but I didn't put any money in Theranos, and I didn't get stuck on that stupid island at the fire festival with nothing to eat or drink, I, you know, and I never hung out with Anna Delvey. So I can look at those people and go, I guess, and I can sort of take a little bit of pleasure in their suffering. Yeah, absolutely. I do think there's a little bit of that. Um, and I think that that's been a common theme throughout history when it comes to the way we relate to victims of con artists. Um, we tend to, as a culture, um, look down on them. We think that they're greedy. We think they're stupid. We think they're gullible, naive. You know, you name the adjective that's not quite the way that one would normally refer to a victim. And it's been applied to con victims. And I think that it is this kind of joint joint feeling on the one hand it's a feeling of superiority as you mentioned Colin that we didn't fall for it and we didn't think we would and on the other hand it's also protective because then it protects you from thinking that you'd be vulnerable in the future because well if it's greed you can say but I'm not greedy if it's naivete you can say ah oh, but I'm much more sophisticated and then these are also I think that the other side of it is 
these can be very easy to ignore in the sense of these are actual victims, right? Because no one got killed. um, No one got robbed. All of these things are crimes of confidence, crimes of trust. And so it's very easy to look at the way that the con artist definitely manipulates the situation and say, oh, my God, look at how clever they are. And we admire cleverness. We think that's pretty damn cool. Yeah, I mean, there's a movie that you and I both like called House of Games, which is about mm-hmm. con artists. But, you know, there's like a scene where Joe Mantegna uh, is instructing Lindsey Krauss on a very simple con, con, uh, con at a like a Western Union window or something. And he is taking advantage of just some poor dupe who clearly, you know, doesn't have a great life or anything like that, but is a little bit too trusting at that moment. And it's a little bit painful to watch, you know, that that's going to happen to that person. These stories that we're circulating now seem to be, have a different kind of victim, right? It's the people who wanted to go to the fire festival were sort of, you know, the modern equivalent of Euro trash or something. <laughs> I mean, we sort of look at them and go, well, yeah, well, if they have a really bad time, I don't care. Yeah, no, it, it is true that the ones that are happening right now, it's even easier than normal to disregard the victim because they are not just well healed, but also they have aspirations that we can make fun of because we can say, oh, you know, this is fear of missing out, but to the five millionth degree, because how could you be so stupid as to think, you know, you'd be able to hang out with all of these celebrities on this beach just because you've looked at these photographs? How can you be so stupid in the case of Anna Delvey, who pretended to be kind of this aristocrat with all of these connections? How could you be so stupid as to think that, you know, you were going to, that you were actually going to get a free lunch, that you were actually going to be able to, dovetail off of all of her connections and um, become someone, become someone, I think, period, (laughs) (laughs) at that at that point. And so we look at that and we think, you know, these people not only had it coming, but I don't even feel particularly bad for them because they kind of deserve it. Um, And with Theranos, I think it's the same thing because you see these really sophisticated investors um, and you say, well, listen, you know, if a journalist could see that something was wrong, um, you guys should have been able to. So clearly you didn't want to. Um, So I think it's much easier to amplify this victim blaming. And by the way, I don't agree with anything I just said. Um, I'm just explaining how it works. Right. right, Exactly. So let's look at the other side of this. So, yeah, we might wrinkle our nose a little bit uh, at some of the people who wanted to go to the fire Festival or some of the rich and famous people who were kind of want to be venture capitalists who put money in Theranos uh, so that they can you know, kind of live the Silicon Valley dream. Uh, but we do, on the other hand, sometimes elevate the con artist to artist status. There's a reason that second word is part of the name. And maybe you could just say a little bit more about Anna Delvey. I think she's a really interesting example of a person who appears to have brought quite a bit of artistry to what she did. Absolutely. Um, So I do think that we really, there's a reason they're called con artists, or as David Moore called them, and he was a linguist who was a historian of the con um, and wrote a book back in 1940 called The Big Con. He called them the aristocrats of crime. And I think there's something to that because they do something that almost no other criminal can do, which is actually make the person the victim complicit in the crime. Because in order for a con to work, it takes two. So if you're getting held up, if you're the victim of a robbery, if you're the victim of a violent crime, it doesn't take two. You just happen to be in the wrong place um, and you're being coerced to do something. But con artists, they do it 
without any visible coercion. You actually want to do it. You give them their money. You give them your trust. You give them all of these platforms in the case of you know, social media. You give them kind of this, this arena in which to operate. And, and so I think that that's one of the reasons that we admire them because we say, oh my God, look at how they did it. And Anna Delvey is such a great example of this because she's in some ways kind of the quintessential example of a type of con that's been around for thousands of years. And that's um, when somebody pretends to be either incredibly wealthy, aristocratic, a celebrity, someone who is close to power. Because there's, there's something in human psychology that makes us really strive to be close to that, to affiliate with that. Um, we think that there's, you know, that it will rub off on us somehow, that it's this halo effect, but one that will not just be part of the person, but will actually rub off on us. And so you have throughout history, people pretending to be, you know, fake counts and countesses. Um, we had lots of fake Rockefellers. How many Anastasia Romanoffs have we had throughout history, right? The, mo the moment that there's someone who can pretend to be, we've had, you know, illegitimate children of jazz musicians, Miles Davis, all of these famous con artists who pretend to be famous. And Anna Delvey did this incredibly well because she just actually she didn't even have to use the Rockefeller name or the Carnegie name or anything like that. She just kind of crafted her own. And she said, yes, um, I'm not going to quite tell you who I am, but this will make you think that I'm even more important because I'm not throwing it in your face. I'm kind of subtly telling you that I have access to all of these influential things. And yes, I'm probably an aristocrat. And oh, yes, I have these familial ties, but without throwing it in anyone's face. And she also was incredibly adept at using all of the new technologies that con artists now have at their disposal, all of the social media that one can use to establish these days credibility, to establish an image, to establish gravitas. So she is just, if you look at how she used Instagram, how she used you know, all of these accounts, it's quite brilliant. And you have to have a grudging admiration for it because she was able to very strategically place pictures, locations, just realize it's, it's beautiful psychology because she realizes exactly what's going to appeal to you, exactly what is going to make her seem more power, powerful, and then she does that. Um, and she does it in a way that it's very organic and she's not putting it in your face. Instead, you just follow her on Instagram and all of a sudden you say, wow. I know you said in the past, Maria, that um, uh, the scammers and scams often thrive on periods of transition. And I think you just kind of highlighted one. I mean, there was a time where maybe it made sense to try to claim that you were a Rockefeller or a Romanoff. Mm -hmm. and, and particularly because at the time, the technology to prove that you weren't wasn't particularly sophisticated. You could probably get away with that for a while. These days, though, there's this entire new class uh, of people that it, they don't have to have a name like that. Uh, there's a way in which the entire apparatus of, of, of what makes people rich and famous is really, really different now. I mean, the modern equivalent of a Rockefeller is maybe a Kardashian, but beyond, mm -hmm. beyond the Kardashian lie, a whole bunch of people whose names I don't know, uh, but who are, in a certain sense, rich and famous. So it seems like a very penetrable citadel, that particular group. 
Absolutely, especially if you can understand how to wield social media. And I think that that's actually another moment of transition right now. Um, so socially, we we are living in a time where norms have shifted very, very quickly. We have all of these new technologies. You know, I'm talking about social media. If you and I had been having this conversation, you know, 20 years ago, um, that wouldn't have even really been a term or it would have meant something totally different. Even five years ago, there was so there were so many fewer platforms and it seems right now every single day you know i log on to one of the old school things like twitter and discover all of these new things that i didn't know existed you know like what's tiktok what are all of these different <laughs> things and this is happening so incredibly rapidly um that i think it's really it's really kind of keying in on our discomfort with seeming like we don't belong, our discomfort with seeming old, seeming out of touch. We want to feel like we're hip and we're with it. And so I think that right now that actually makes us much more vulnerable to be conned in this particular fashion because it's much more socially acceptable. It makes us feel like we have more social capital if we just nod our heads and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what that is. <laughs> and then you quickly try to figure it out and try to catch up rather than say, oh, you know, I'm not on social media. You have to really earn the right to say I'm not on social media. I think one of the Kardashians could probably say that, but no one else could really get away with it. And con artists can really tap into that discomfort um, and use it to their advantage because we want to feel hip. And so we're not going to question as much. We're just going to kind of accept it and say, oh, wow, yes, I want to be part of this rather than say, okay, let me scrutinize. Let me do some background digging. Let me see if this is really legitimate. I mean, before the show started, you and I were talking about Instagram influencers. And at a certain point in the case of the Fire Festival, mm -hmm. um, the organizers became very interested in recruiting Instagram influencers uh, and, and comping them and offering them luxury accommodations, which really didn't exist like all the, all the other luxury accommodations. But they really sort of saw that as the key to selling this castle in the clouds that was this rock concert in the Bahamas. Uh, and, and which is weird because it's like it's exactly what you're talking about it's a term that didn't exist two years ago what mm -hmm. was it you know and and now it's a thing what it's it's something who uh, a sort of artificial bond of trust in somebody who's on instagram absolutely absolutely and you see some of these accounts and you have no idea who they are you didn't know the name um even a day ago and you look and you say oh my god who is this person who has hundreds of thousands of followers. This is crazy. And people are actually listening to what they say. And it's this entire subculture. And I think that a lot of it is fueled um, by this kind of transition and the, this technological change and the fact that people do want to seem with it. And this seems like a more direct line to that. So rather than look at, you know, a fashion icon who's many steps removed from you, who you could never have access to, who seems remote and you probably can't afford any of this stuff. I think this influencer class makes it seem like, oh, this could be me. There's also this this sense of of opportunity that I could be the influencer, but I can also be as cool as the influencer by using all of these things that seem that seem in my reach. It's, it's much more kind of peer-to-peer. -peer. It seems more direct. You can communicate with them through direct messages. You can comment on their pictures and they respond. I mean, it's this sense of community. And now you put con artists into that and they're going to 
thrive. I mean, this is just like, you know, just this is like putting them in kind of a bowl full of fish where it's just overflowing. The fish are just everywhere. And all of a sudden they're this one shark and they say, ha, 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 look at this really, really tasty breakfast, lunch and dinner. I'm going to be able to feast forever. And they can because this is really a climate where that can thrive until people start getting a little bit savvier. But I actually don't see that happening anytime soon because it's just so foreign to human psychology um, to not want to be part of a community like that. Maria Konnikova, I want to ask you also, this is something we talked about in our one of our meetings about this show, about what's going on in the minds of the, the con artist, him or herself. I mean, I find mm-hmm. myself wondering if Bernie Madoff or Elizabeth Holmes or Billy McFarlane, the, the, the fire guy, or Anna Delvey, if they somehow or other really do believe that they're just one wire transfer away from making this whole thing work. <laughs> Um, You know, that's a very good question. And I would say that the answer is no, I don't think that they actually believe it. Um, And I think we have in all of the cases that you cite, I do think that we have evidence that that's that seems to show that with Bernie Madoff, um, you know, he if you look at how he was running his business and how a lot of Ponzi schemes work, it becomes very clear at some point that this is just going to be a Ponzi scheme. At the beginning, at, when something like that just starts out, you often have moments of just someone thinking that it's going to be temporary, someone thinking that, oh, you know, I'm going to cook the books this one quarter and then the next quarter, everything's going to be okay. And then obviously it doesn't become okay. And so it starts perpetuating. So that happens. But someone like Bernie Madoff, this went on way too long and was way too big. Um, And he's very smart. He's a good investor. He was someone who actually had made a lot of money in legitimate ways, very intelligent human being. So I don't think that he could possibly think that this is ever going to go away because he just knows that the magnitude is too stark. With Elizabeth Holmes, we have a very, very clear example of the fact that she knew what she was doing because she was told when she was in college, she had scientific advisors who said, hey, you know, this is not going to work the way that you want it to work. We're not there technologically. We don't have the knowledge um, and we can't support you on this journey. And so instead of saying, okay, I'm going to take that as a challenge. I'm really going to work hard on the science. I'm going to educate myself and try to find new technology. She drops out of school and starts raising money to for the idea that she was already told was not going to work the way that she envisioned it. And so to me, that says not I truly want to innovate. And I think this is possible. But, you know, I think that this is an idea that will sell. And now let me create this origin myth. Let me create this image. I know exactly how Silicon Valley works. I know exactly how people are able to raise money. I'm going to tap into it and I'm going to do it brilliantly. And with Anna Delvey, I mean, I think it was very clear that this was always going to be one con to the next because she never even had that much money. She was always just one exotic destination away from ruin. Right. No visible means of support, but living this incredible lifestyle and fitting in with this group of people who really were new money. Hey, we just have a little bit of time left, but I want to quickly talk about what role punishment plays, punishment <laughs> of these people play in our understanding of this. I mean, we, we get the shot. We sort of win on both ends, right? We get the schadenfreude of watching the idiots who went to fire, but then we also get a certain satisfaction. We do want these people punished, I think. I think we do. I think we do. Um, unfortunately, 
um, it's very, very difficult to punish them quite often because obviously with someone like Bernie Madoff, they did break the law, but oftentimes there's no clear law that was broken. Um, and so it becomes very difficult to dole out punishment. Although Anna Delvey uh, wound up at Rikers, Billy McFarlane yes. went to jail. This I mean, is true. Yeah, this yeah. is true. So the ones that we're talking about are being punished, but there are so many out there that haven't even been <laughs> identified because people won't come forward. Um, or even if they do come forward, it's just very hard to find corroborating evidence. But yes, I think we do like to have this neat little bow um, at the end of the story to say, well, you know, they got punished, but we probably actually don't want to see them punished too hard. I know that there are some people who still, you know, support Elizabeth Holmes. There are people who think Billy McFarland wasn't that bad. And I disagree with those people. I think that <laughs> they need a lot of punishment, but um, I, I still think that we reserve more sympathy for them. Um, and so we want a slap on the wrist. Sure, we want them to go to jail, but just for a little bit. Um, and then we'll be happy, you know, seeing them, having seeing a movie about them and seeing them at the premiere, you know, seeing Anna Delvey. <laughs> oh, not, that'll be great. Jennifer yeah, Lawrence. <laughs> that'll be great if they actually come to the premieres of their own movies. Maria Konnikova, we're out of time, but it's so great to talk to you. Nobody better. Journalist, professional poker player, author of The Confidence Game. And we're going to take a little break right now. We hope that you like conversations like this one with guests like this. So please support the station and this show. I'll be on my way. Hey, it's Kion Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 <laughs> seconds, maybe 50 seconds mm -hmm. on like five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. All right. In this segment, uh, we're going to focus a little bit on the particular scam that got us interested in this whole phenomenon in the first place. That's uh, Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. Before I even um, introduce our guest, Allison Wilmore, let's hear one of the easiest clips in the world to find, Jim Cramer predicting something incorrectly. Just one last question. Uh, to me, it, it, it's reasonable to compare you, I usually don't do this, to Steve Jobs and what he did for computing. Uh, I regard you as a visionary next generation person. Is, is this the kind of ridiculous pressure that nobody needs? You know, Steve Jobs was, I don't think there is another Steve Jobs. He was a phenomenal entrepreneur. We've got an incredible opportunity to try to uphold a legacy in Silicon Valley of changing the world. And Disrupting the world. We're working 24-7 to do it. All right. So Allison Wilmore, a critic and culture writer for BuzzFeed, uh, has written about the Elizabeth Holmes phenomenon and story. Uh, and she's joining us now. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. So um, we should begin just by saying that if Elizabeth Holmes could participate in the profits of all the culture that's going to be generated by her story, whether it's the Jennifer Lawrence movie or the Kate McKinnon TV series or the incredibly successful Bad Blood book by John Carreyou or the Dropout podcast, she could probably fund Theranos for another couple of years if she were eligible to, to get some of the money from this. Why is it that we can't stop watching this story? 
Yeah, I had joked to my editor before writing this piece that there was kind of the Elizabeth Holmes industrial complex. <laughs> and certainly she, hers is a story that we can't seem to to help re-examining in different ways, both in nonfiction and fiction. I think it's because it seems like this really, in particular, telling story about Silicon Valley and the tech industry and VC funding and the ways in which we really want to, you know, kind of deify heads of companies as these visionary geniuses who are going to save the world. You know, I think that we're kind of attached to that idea. And the Theranos story really punctured it by showing the ways in which that can make people overlook these huge red flags. Yeah. And, and I also think that part of the story also is that a lot of the people who were duped by Elizabeth um, were not necessarily the sort of nameless, faceless uh, venture capitalists who really, you know, are very good at investigating these kinds of things and calculating risk. A lot of it were sort of rich and famous venture capitalists, wannabes, and her board is stacked with all these old men who are former cabinet officials, you know, people who are kind of well known for other things, uh, or, or even sitting cabinet officials in at least one case, who are really well known for other things, who somehow or other are seduced by her combination of savvy and, and perhaps even the fact that she's an attractive young woman. Absolutely. And I think, you know, she was very canny about uh, kind of picking up all of these different signifiers of CEO genius, right? The, the turtlenecks, the black turtlenecks, the uniform. That was a very kind of knowing Steve Jobs homage uh, the fact that she mostly drank green juice, as far as I can tell, you know, was this, it kind of echoes the founder of Twitter, who also has these almost like monastic mm-hmm. uh, qualities that, that really kind of, they kind of imply that you are too busy, you know, for such things of the flesh. You are so focused on your business. Uh, I think, you know, one of those powerful men that she collected on her board as an ally was Henry Kissinger. Mm-hmm. And in the documentary about her, he said, she had a sort of ethereal quality. She was like a member of a monastic order. And I think the fact that she had this personal branding that was so strategic, uh, you know, up to and including the kind of low voice, uh, I, I think that that really won people over, you know, when there was very little actual hard evidence that her ideas were implementable. Right. And as far as we can tell, even the low voice is not her real voice, right? <laughs> Right. You know, um, it's, it's, that's certainly been uh, an object of obsession for a lot of people. And, I, you know, there was a, a podcast appearance she did where she came on and it seemed like she slipped, that she started speaking in a kind of higher, more natural register and then kind of went back down. And certainly uh, employees in Jim Carrier's book, uh, John Carrier's book, excuse me, have talked about on occasion witnessing her slip out. So it seems to have been an affectation. And I think you could argue it's one that was intended to combat, you know, I think inherent gender bias in in the mostly men who she was kind of trying to impress and win over, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's this way of kind of separating yourself from other women. You're not like other women. You are you are this different kind of uh, 
separate from both gender and the rest of humanity. Right. You know, I, I think one thing that the HBO documentary The Inventor explores a little bit, too, is we tend to lionize these people who are innovators or inventors. And uh, this even harks back to Thomas Edison, uh, a line of comparison also drawn between him and Elizabeth Holmes by Elizabeth Holmes. But but it was sort of is the case that, you know, we tend to think that it's one great man or woman. And it's really not. It's usually a whole bunch of people. The comedian Bill Burr does this whole routine about Steve Jobs where he claims that what he, what he basically did is walk by a whole bunch of people on his staff and say, you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to turn pages on a screen just the way I turn pages in a magazine. I'll see you in about eight months, okay? Um, and, and there is a little bit of that in this story, too, that, that it's all about this one person, but it can't really be all about this one person. The undertaking is is too large for it to be. Right. And, you know, Elizabeth Holmes was not a scientist. Uh, you know, a, a huge part of her mythology was, that, you know, she dropped out of Stanford when she was 19 years old because she was so busy starting the startup. But, I, you know, I think uh, that part was unimportant. I think for a lot of people she had, she came from the right background in terms of her family. She said the right things. Uh, and I think, you know, there are ways in which you can almost imagine this alternate universe version of Theranos being successful if somehow she had managed to put together this team that could have pulled it off in which this would just become more of that mythology. You know, the fact that they had kind of gotten through on bluster for this long is certainly part of a lot of startups, you know, part of the way they, they kind of prove how scrappy they are, that then they made it happen. I think another part of why we like this so much and why you know, I will probably wind up watching uh, most of the Elizabeth Holmes products or listening to all the podcasts, reading the books, is we, I mean, like when I watch The Inventor on HBO, you actually see Henry Kissinger and George Schultz and William Perry and all the, and and General Mattis, you know, all these people. (laughs) And and at that moment, even though they are storied people of very high attainment, at that moment, I'm way smarter than they are. I'm sitting there looking, looking at them going, you idiots. <laughs> because Now, in reality, I'm not any smarter than they are. I just have the advantage of being in a different time point right now. Uh, but there is kind of a joy, I think, we take in that, right? That we're looking at these people and going, oh, no, I'm way smarter than you are. Oh, absolutely. I, I think... You know, and I think the Anna Delvey kind of scam story as well played off of that. And I think that was one of the reasons that we've all kind of been so enraptured by them is the idea that someone kind of exposes the the weaknesses in powerful people, these powerful, wealthy people that in the end, they are kind of as susceptible to, you know, someone who fits their idea, their their kind of limited idea of what a, a genius is what a wealthy heiress looks like. And sometimes those are like pretty, a pretty small set of signifiers that end up convincing someone. And I certainly think when you watch the Elizabeth Holmes story, there's a bit of schadenfreude, you know, where you're, you're watching all of these people who have been like collected, you know, in anticipation of success. And they're all people who I think would say themselves that they would know better. And it turns out they didn't, you know, they were really, drawn in uh, and fooled. I think these things also, they function 
as schadenfreude for us, but they also function kind of as horror movies for us, too, particularly in the sense that we're constantly looking at and bewildered by and uncertain of a whole range of so-called truths that are being put out to us in a very kind of deranging media system. So, you know, yes, is this new thing I'm reading about, is it really any good or is it another piece of hokum? How will I ever figure that out? Or this thing is backed by these five Instagram influencers, except were their loyalties bought by somebody as part of some marketing plan? Or can I really believe in my cherished Instagram influencers? It seems like it's a, it's a world that's increasingly difficult to navigate in that way. And these stories tap into our horror at it. Absolutely. I, you know, I think that we're at, in a moment in which people are feeling like a lot of these systems that have guided our life are, are essentially scams of one sort or another, or they're rigged, you know. I think that that is one of the few bipartisan sentiments uh, with regard to politics right now. I think a lot of people feel that way about the economy, about the college system, which had its own kind of epic scandal recently with regarding scams, yep. people trying to build the system. The fire Festival, which really exposed the way it takes very little, you know, a bunch of Instagram influencers to mm. kind of pass off this giant event that people got on planes for. And so I think in some ways these scam stories speak to that, but they also, you know, they, they speak to exposing the fact that these systems are all in some ways rigged, you know, that they are, they are rigged to favor certain qualities uh, and that that is exposed when we see people take advantage uh, of those elements, you know, and, and are able to get really far without actually having anything to back that up. Right. I mean, you mentioned bipartisan sentiment, but um, another aspect of this is that in the 2016 election, we now know from the Mueller indictments, Russian operatives came over here and assumed the identities of dead people and took their social security numbers and created social media presence for, presences for them, which seems very much connected to some 19th century con or hustle. So, yeah, I, I think, you Absolutely. know, it's penetrating every aspect of our life. <laughs> Alison Wilmore, so great to talk to you. Critic and culture writer for BuzzFeed News. You should definitely read Elizabeth Holmes's scam is over, but her story will go on forever. Absolutely true. Let's take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about one more area of ways in which integrity either is or isn't compromised. That is in the music business. Today's show was produced by Lily Tyson, blah, 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 with senior producer Betsy Kaplan, yada, yada. Okay, is that out of the way? Now, I want to tell you about the Wolfie Festival. I've bought a mountain, a beautiful mountain in New Mexico, and I'm offering a festival featuring some of your favorite bands. Maroon 6, Coolplay, JX, Purple Floyd. You'll take baths in Avion water and have sex with actual angels from the Bible and stay in luxury tents that... Who, who are you guys? You can't handcuff me while I'm on the air. Did that... Did that wire transfer not come through? Because I've been having a problem with my Swiss investors. Don't touch me! I'm a former Navy SEAL! Okay, on tomorrow's show, the nose talks about Beyonce and the man who broke Jeopardy. 
And now, back to Colin. Can I call my lawyer? All right. So that sounds like a fairly ugly situation that's developing there. Uh, we're going to talk now to Craig Jenkins, a music critic uh, of New York Magazine. I am, as I uh, frequently stress, incredibly old. So I remember how weird it was when George Harrison, who was had already been a Beatle and had nothing left to prove, presumably, uh, got caught probably unconsciously plagiarizing damn near note for note uh, the song She's He's So Fine in, in order to create My Sweet Lord. And that's sort of what musical plagiarism was for a while, I think, you know, when you could get caught that way. But Craig Jenkins, now music is so much a pastiche, a kind of layering of a bunch of musical ideas and sampling uh, of just this or that sequence uh, of notes played in a specific way from an older song. I, I think it's gotten a lot more complicated. It's not as simple as He's So Fine and My Sweet Lord, right? You're, you're really looking at a, at a layer cake. Yeah. Um, you have people who are paid to create vibes, you know, from other songs and people who are actively listening to other music, you know, from other artists and, you know, taking a piece of that for themselves very intentionally, in addition to people who are doing this stuff subconsciously. All right. So uh, we're going to, uh, uh, first of all, we should say that there's a really fascinating series uh, done uh, in Vulture that includes uh, the writing of Craig Jen- Jenkins looking at this whole question. But well, let's pick one of the things just to give people an example. Um, so uh, we're going to begin by hearing a little clip of Hotline Bling, the, the Drake hit. You used to call me on my cell phone. Day night when you need me. All right, so um, so that's that. Uh, now we're going to play uh, a song called Cha Cha from 2014. So it would have been roughly released about a year earlier than Hotline Bling by an artist. Craig, I am so uncool. I don't know whether you say dram or D-R-A-M, which uh, is drum. Drum. Okay. So this is the song. I just revealed myself as deeply uncool. All right. So uh, this is the song Cha Cha. I like to cha cha. And a Latin Okay, so I have to say, I, I know this is considered prima facie evidence of some kind of musical plagiarism. I don't, I don't know. I mean, what am I supposed to be hearing here? Is it the underlying beat? Um, yeah, kind of like the, the way that the production sort of pulls in that cha-cha thing and the way that the guy sort of floats over it, top of it with the vocal. Um, the story is, though, that uh, when Highline Blink first premiered on Apple Music, um, if you looked at the ticker that says what the song is called, it was called Cha Cha Remix. So now this gets to Drum's attention, and he's <laughs> furious as to where his credit is, and gets furious. Drake is pressed in an interview sometime later, and he says that he was just, uh, you know, giving his own interpretation on the vibe, the way dancehall, you know, singers do, you know, borrow each other's beats. You know that he sometimes hears an idea, and he likes to take a crack at it for himself. So, 
I, I'm also wondering whether since the really celebrated case of blurred lines uh, and the, the, the Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke tune that really borrowed from Marvin Gaye, whether people kind of have happy feet right now. They feel a little bit nervous, like they, they better give everybody that they can think of credit just because they don't want to go through something like that. Absolutely. There are people who are, you know, forking over bits of the publishing because, you know, just to be on the safe side. Like the, we, there's a piece in the, uh, in the package that we wrote um, with, you know, this singer-songwriter B.B. Rexa. Mm-hmm. She was talking about her song, I'm a Mess, and how, you know, she didn't really feel like there were any similarities, identifiable similarities between her song and, you know, the Meredith Brooks single that she was thinking about after she heard it. But she still gave, you know, a quarter, you know, some kind of portion of the publishing over, you know, just in case, you know, to keep people from feeling like they need to sue, like, better to chop them off a piece from the start. Right. And it also seems as though the original creators may be taking a little bit of, of advantage at time of that kind of uh, of that kind of anxiety. Uh, I read one story. I can't remember whether it was in your series or someplace else about uh, I think it was Public Enemy wanting to wanting to borrow uh, or Chuck D wanting to borrow part of a Stephen Sills Stills oh, song. Yeah, yeah. And they wanted one hundred and seventy five percent royalties, which is to say one hundred percent royalties of that song and seventy five percent of some other song on the same album, which seems a little bit gra- greedy. Well, that happens. Um, and it's really funny for the 60s musicians to be sort of litigious about that stuff because, you know, Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones all got on by, you know, flipping old blues standards. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, the Radiohead song Creep, I think, I think the story with that one is that they don't make any money off of it because it, you know, interpolated some kind of a Graham Nash song. Mm-hmm. So, you know... You want to try and get those people involved. <laughs> you also want to try and differentiate your music right. from whatever you know the source material is, or whatever the most the nearest familiar melody is, because you want to make money. Right. Um, let's uh, take another example of this. Uh, this is uh, the uh, Ariana Grande song Seven Rings," uh, which uh, wound up getting "quote unquote" kind of compared to a whole bunch of other different songs. But let's hear Ariana Grande first. Okay, now uh, let's listen to one of the songs that possibly this song strongly resembles. It's called Mine by Princess Nokia. Okay, there are at least two other songs that Ariana Grande may or may not have borrowed from in creating Seven Rings. I don't know. This time, I kind of, I kind of see what Princess Nokia might be complaining about, but maybe you can put it into words for me. Well, in hip hop and R and B, you know, cadences become very popular, and a lot of people try them out. Um, and so the Nokia song was, I think, the second one that I had heard that someone had used, you know, that specific sort of way of phrasing the words. And Ariana Grande did it again. And, you know, it became a big argument because there are suddenly three or four artists claiming to have, you know, created different pieces of it. But really the story is that that's kind of just the way hip-hop works right now. You know, someone comes up with a cool way to say something and then everyone else kind of, you know, takes their own crack at it. Right. I mean, there's legal and illegal ways of doing it, but I think that Seven Rings isn't like a case, isn't an actionable case 
right. the way that she's saying the words. So, um, you know, we only have about a minute left, but I don't know. Isn't that the way music works? I mean, songs, musicians have always said to me, if you hear something that you think is totally original, that just means you haven't heard the earlier source material. Yeah, you know, that like it's, in a way, you kind of have to throw up your hands, don't you, Craig? You do. Um, you know, but throwing people some money ahead of time seems to make people happy now, and it seems to be cutting down a little bit on cases like, you know, the Blurred Lines one. Right. Eventually there'll be a song credit, credit that's like 18 people on it, you know. Oh, that's happening oh. now. You know, it'll, <laughs> it'll sample a song, and then everyone who had anything to do with the writing of it, and if that song sampled a song, suddenly you end up with songs, you know, on people's new albums with 20 and 25 songwriter credits. That's All right. happening. I can't even make up something absurd enough to exceed the current reality. Craig Jenkins uh, from New York Magazine, thank you so much for joining us. Now we're going to go to a little break. Uh, the show, Our show is over, but people are coming on to ask you to support our show. Really need to, you to do this. Uh, we're coming to the end of the fun drive. It's going to end tomorrow. So I really uh, hope that you will listen to these people and do what they ask you to do. It really helps us if you pledge during our time slot.